This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When I think of the artist Selena, I think of how massive her legacy is, given how young she was when she was killed. There is a new documentary about her death, but it's told largely from the perspective of her killer. Today on the podcast, what does the Selena documentary tell us about true crime right now? I'm Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Look, I think the right place to start here is to remind you of what we lost when we lost Selena. That's Como La Flor. That's a bit of Selena's hit song. Look, Selena was killed in 1995, and there are so many things that make this awful story even more tragic. For one, she was 23. For another, when she was killed, she was just on the verge of becoming a world sensation. She was shot by the president of her fan club, Yolanda Saldivar. There is a new docuseries that claims to shed new light on the beloved star, It also includes an interview with her convicted killer from prison. It's called Selena and Yolanda, The Secrets Between Them. There's a lot to talk about, and here to talk about it, we've got culture writers and fans, Susie Exposito and Alyssa Dominguez. Alyssa, Susie, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me back. (laughs) I'm I'm happy that you're both here. Look, uh, this is uncomfortable for me because we have to hear the voice of Selena's murder. This docuseries is the first one to center her voice. Here's a bit of what she had to say in the first episode. I was convicted by public opinion even before my trial started. They have been fed um, uh, a narrative that is not correct, that I was an embezzler, that I was an obsessed fan. My right as a as a citizen of the United States to be innocent and to proven guilty was reversed on me. I was guilty and needed to prove my, my innocence. Susie, you have an uncomfortable face. I had an uncomfortable face watching this documentary. I had an uncomfortable face playing that clip even in that moment. So let's just get into it. What are your thoughts having just watched the docuseries? Um, nothing about it changed my mind mm. when it came to just recognizing that Yolanda murdered one of the most beloved pop stars, um, you know, of, of our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if she, I, I don't think she's innocent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think maybe she needed to tell her story. If anything, she needed to tell her story, but it doesn't make her innocent. 
Yeah, this is a sort of a complicated thing. Is that like when these documentaries come out, Alyssa, they tend to say, hey, we are going to reveal some new information. Hey, you're going to learn something new that maybe makes you see this death in a new light. Susie's reaction there is, I watched this thing and I didn't come away thinking anything different about this, but, but Yolanda. What, what did the decision to, what do you make of the decision to include Yolanda's story in this documentary, Alyssa? I think that it was, there were there were aspects of it that did add a kind of nuance to um, a lot of the way that the story of her death was told by her family. You know, her dad is really controlled. Selena's um, dad? Yeah, yeah. Selena's yeah. dad has really controlled her, her legacy and sort of the way that she has been um, understood. And I remember that there was this journalist, Maria Celeste Raras, who did a book called Selena's Secret that was sort of playing on the same trope. Hmm. Uh, she had interviewed Yolanda and her family because it's really the documentary is really more about her family. Yeah. And sort mm-hmm. of her family's attempts to get people to look beyond sort of lesbian murder tropes um, that happened in the 90s. Um, and I do think that, you know, it's complicated because on the one hand, I think I, I don't think that incarcerated people lose their right to uh, talk about their life. Um, Mm. I also don't Mm -hmm. think necessarily that the documentary it's, I mean, I think in an, in an odd way, it kind of sheds some light on, um, it makes the story more complicated, right? Like that, the fact that there was this kind of post, my opinion, post what we saw with the Britney conservatorship, post what we saw with Whitney, with all these women pop stars. A reframing of their lives and reframing of who had agency in their lives. Yes, and of the of the role of the stage father, which is mm. often naturalized as sort of, oh, he's just protective, he's just a little bit mm-hmm. jealous. Remember in the Selena movie, there was this, these scenes around like, oh, he's just jealous about how she presents her own body. And it's presented in this very sort of un- kind of understanding, sympathetic way to the dad. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, again, after everything that's come out about that role in popular culture and the way that daughters are actually often as artists are often stifled. I think that in some ways the documentary added some nuance Hmm. to a story that has been absolutely owned literally and metaphorically by the family. And all these stories about uh, she was having an affair. I mean, I don't think that's a quote unquote bad thing. That's nuance to who she was as a person who was sure. 24 was coming into her womanhood probably was about was you know she had been alive as long as Beyonce would have fired her dad just like Beyonce fired her dad I mean sure so there's just there's a lot of nuance that the story has kind of lacked now I don't again that's separate from this question of before the incarcerated people have a right to their story which I think they do um, I want to come back to everything that you just talked about, who owns the Selena story in just a moment. But let me just ask you, just on the frame of do incarcerated people have the right to tell the story, does it surprise you that Yolanda herself is talking after all these years? I mean, this is a murder that happened in 1995. Um, we are coming up on 30 years since then. Does it surprise you that she's talking now? No, because that's the part that's kind of annoying about the sensationalism of selling this as new Mm. A lot of this information is just not new. I mean, it was literally, there was a whole series about quote unquote, Selena's secret. I mean, and that kind of trope that like, I mean, so that's not new. A lot of the information is not new, but a lot of the recontextualization is, and I think culturally, the understanding again of the stage dad, of what it means 
for a pop star in her mid twenties coming into her own, who wanted to be this kind of fashion influencer. Sure. And honey, she invented mm-hmm. Kardashian face. So why shouldn't she? So <laughs> she's like, I think that in a lot of ways, again, I just, I, I think that there's, you don't want to say that like, oh, it's great that this was made or, or whatnot. And, and there's certainly sensationalism and sure. But I, but I think that, I, I don't know who owns, you know, Selena's story. And I don't know that the way that her family has kind of simplified the story is the best way to grapple with it. Well, let's let's get to that, Susie, because this isn't the first time, uh, obviously, that this this story has been tackled. There was a movie of famously starring Jennifer Lopez in the late 90s. There was a Netflix series that was released a few years back in 2021. We got a podcast called Anything for Selena. How do all of these titles treat Selena's story, do you think? Um, I would say that across the board, a lot of the story has been monopolized by Selena's father, Abraham Mm. Quintanilla, who owns Selena's estate. And, Mm. you know, he's he's been a really litigious person over time. You know, he Mm. has fired cease and desist letters at even her impersonators, you know, like even drag queens. Um, Oh, wow. And. Yes. I mean, he's, like I said, a very litigious person who has over the last 30, almost 30 years, really, or even even during Selena's career, like Alessa said, he has asserted ownership over her image and her story for so long Mm -hmm. that to the to the point where, you know, rarely is it that anyone can can really speak to like the mythology of Selena nuances of things. And, and, you know, in the podcast, um, anything for Selena, uh, uh, Maria, the host, she actually interviewed Abraham and it was, it Mm. was tense, you know, Mm. he's, he thinks of himself as just being a good dad. And I think that especially those of us who, who come from like immigrant family backgrounds, you know, a lot of us who grew up in, in the U S or grew up in the diaspora, it's like, there's bound to be some clash between the values of of you as a person, mm-hmm. especially young women as people and their parents. Um, and so you see that tension, you know, between values, like you see that resonate in the way that they tell their story in the Netflix series mm-hmm. um, that came out, you know, that was, that was the family had a heavy hand in how that story was told. The story was very much about the family and their dynamic, but their dynamic was really toxic, honestly. Mm. So, and, and Yolanda, you know, in her documentary, she does speak to that. She was terrified by Selena's father. And one of the things, one of the revelations that I thought was interesting was the fact that, you know, Selena getting into uh, the fashion industry, starting her Mm. own line, that was a way of Selena claiming her own autonomy, you know, whereas her father, controlled her her music career he could feel his grasp slipping away when she started working in fashion Hmm. and she had to go out and get funding you know she got outside funding from this investor who it's revealed you know she might have had an affair with him as as yolanda alleges but none of this at the end of the day you know changes what yolanda did which Yolanda says herself by the end of the documentary, she's like, I'm telling you my story. I, you know, I'll regret this for the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. but it it does reveal, I think the, 
the 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 power struggle that still endures to this day over who gets to tell Selena's story. And I'm sorry, Abraham, but you know, it's it's not just her family. It's not right. just her father who owns her story. Uh, Alyssa, maybe we got about a minute left here, but let me ask you, why do you think we keep returning to Selena's story? Why is it that every few years there's a new sort of piece of media that says, I think we can shed some more light on this from a different angle? What is it about this story that, you know, people keep mining? I think that in a lot of ways, her story is very enmeshed with uh, the way that Latinx popular, popular culture kind of I mean, People Magazine in Espanol was a thing because of Selena, because mm. people ran to a split uh, cover. One was like sort of like the usual white cover. And then the other one was the Selena cover. And it sold out within like minutes. And they were like, wow, there's this whole untapped market um, out there. And that's what gave us people in, in Espanol. I mean, I don't know if that's a great thing or not, but the point is her story <laughs> sort of enmeshed with the history of Latinx popular culture. She was a very, she was a very different kind of star than the sort of Eurocentric um, pop uh, sort of soap stars turned pop stars that were kind of dominating Latinx pop at the time. Um, she had a very unique story. Um, there's just so many aspects of, I mean, the music was such a meld of, of different elements of, mm. again, Latinx culture. I mean, she wanted to mix Janet Jackson and Jody Watley with, sort of, you know, Tejano, and then with Cumbia, and then with, so it's just like, she was, there's so many elements to the story um, that I think there will always be ways to, just for the record, even the Kardashian face comment I got from a YouTube video that I saw. Where it was kind of, <laughs> so even, I think fans, as they kind of discover her, there, there are always more kind of nuances yeah. to find it because she, her whole phenomenon was such a complex um, intersecting story of all these different, um, I guess, elements. I uh, gotta say, Susie, Alessa, my intention was to talk about what this documentary tells us about the true crime moment right now, but we didn't even get to that because there's so much to mine here. And given all of this, you've turned me around. Alyssa and Susie, you've turned me around on the idea that, you know what, it is valuable to hear from someone even if they did commit the murder because they, in this particular case, have a reframing to introduce. In the meantime, Alyssa Dominguez, Susie Exposito, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here. You guys are the best. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Susie Exposito is a culture columnist. She's joined me from Los Angeles. Alessa Dominguez is a culture writer based in New York. Selena and Yolanda, The Secrets Between Them, is streaming now in Hey You in Canada and on Peacock in the U.S. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Look, we're going to shift gears here for a moment. Look, when I go to art galleries, I kind of enjoy people seeing people taking selfies in front of the art. Seems kind of wholesome to me. A nice way to see some art and maybe remember that moment. Seems pretty harmless, right? 
Well, apparently not. Not according to a new report by one of the biggest insurers of fine art. That report says that people taking selfies and backing into the paintings or knocking over sculptures may pose a bigger threat to art than thieves or protesters throwing cans of soup or anything else. Melissa Smith is a program curator at the Art Gallery of Ontario. She's here to talk about all of this. Melissa, welcome back to Commotion. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm happy that you're here. Look, you're pro taking selfies in galleries. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But let's start by talking about the downsides. Hiscox Insurance published this report, and they said that half of the art underwriting business can be attributed to accidental damage and that a lot of that is caused by just people taking selfies. Some of these examples made headlines. What stood out for you? I mean, honestly, I think it's a bit sensationalized. And okay. I think it's All also right. a way of not viewing how museums have evolved, truly, mm. because I think they're not just spaces to store objects. It's also about how people engage. And there's so many folks in a museum and a gallery space that work very hard to ensure that the artwork is safe, but yeah. also the people are safe. And there's a myriad of strategies for that. I mean, a lot of that is about asking people to sort of slow down. And we've had conversations about that before, slowing down, looking at art. Also, not necessarily telling people where to go, having Mm -hmm. seating. There's even sight lines and elements like that. And I think often those stories aren't quite as interesting, right? So we don't hear the nuance of what goes into conserving a work or for hanging a work and Yeah, so I think sometimes I'm just like, okay, maybe it was a slow week in the news. (laughs) (laughs) But what I I liked about this is I asked you about some of the examples that stood out in the report, and you were like, no, I don't even want to deal with any of these. And that's that's fair. So let's talk about the thing that you like. Let's talk about the the, the idea that, you know what, yes, there are risks, I guess, but you actually kind of like it when people are taking selfies with art. Why is that? 100%. I mean, I think they're incredibly creative. Mm -hmm. If you even just take the time to look at hashtag art selfie, hashtag museum selfie, they're so interesting. There's a whole bunch about mimicry, posing, um, tableau vivant, all these things that we love to see when people are actually engaging with art. It's also about bringing art into the everyday. Mm -hmm. And for me, because I'm deeply interested in this, it's also about lowering any perceived or physical barriers to the collections Mm. too, right? So that means that we're getting work out for people to see. I also feel like it's part of a tradition of self-portraiture to a certain extent that really is sort of meta within an art gallery as well. And there's just such a nuance to how people identify. And identity in general is complex. But seeing how one represents oneself in a space that also has uh, incredible paintings, what we choose, and that kind of social connection that I think is so inherent and interesting in how museums are evolving pretty much. I mean, that's what the space is literally for. But also, like, tell me a little bit about the, the hashtag art selfie that you just mentioned. If I, if I sort of type in art selfie into Instagram, what are the, some of the examples that you like that I'm going to find? Oh, my God. People dressing up like <laughs> characters in the painting. That's definitely <laughs> my favorite. Um, people yes. just also looking exactly like the subject that's represented in the work as well. Like just a doppelganger moment where no one has planned that, but yeah. that just manifests. Yeah. Uh, there's just I also love when there's groups of people that kind of come together in some way. The contemplative selfie that sort of references uh uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like there's just, and I think it's really interesting because they're not just 
a representation of a person's image. They're really multidimensional in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I, so, what, I, what, I, what I started noticing is that like in recent years, galleries seem to be actually quite excited to curate the exhibits to encourage people to take mm-hmm. photos and share on social media. I'm thinking here of the, the exhibit that you guys had. Not you guys, but I'm thinking here of uh, Yayoi Lusama and after someone taking a selfie in L.A. accidentally smashed one of her pieces – what precautions did the AGO take with her work? Because people clearly seem to want to do that. Yeah. And I mean, this is also an example of where there were so many people um, internally that have such great expertise, our visitor experience team, our logistics our services team. I could go on and on and on yeah. about how thoughtful the exhibition and the setup was. In that case, what we did do is in the particular um, infinity room where that had occurred, because it's just filled with amazing pumpkins, yeah. we decided that maybe it was just good enough to go in there and have the experience of looking <laughs> while all the rest of Some the rooms are just for looking, yes. Just for looking. Um, and I think that there was really no pushback on that either. There was an understanding of like, hey, in this particular case, this one's just a bit more um, about experience. Mm -hmm. And that was truly what we saw as well. When people were coming to the Yayu Kusama show, it was very much about the experience itself. And in museum studies, there's a lot of research that's been done about that, like motivational identities for coming to museums. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of different ones. You can be a recharger, you can be a facilitator. And that's like a Mm -hmm. parent typically with their kids or a teacher. But also you can be an experience seeker who's someone that's just coming to be there and that's equally as valid. And it also tends to bring people in that have never been before. So we mm-hmm. saw so many new folks that, you know, it sort of it was exciting to be able to to share that experience and see people documenting it in really like complex mm-hmm. ways, I think. You know what I hear, Melissa, is I hear a tension. I hear a tension between two different ideas of what an art, art gallery space is supposed to be, what a museum space is supposed to be. The, the British Museum and a bunch of museums in Milan have actually banned selfie sticks. They're saying, you know what, you know, turning galleries into social media backdrops, uh, that takes away from the idea that this is a space for cultural enrichment and reflection. That is that is two different conceptions of the world kind of clashing here. What do you say? What do you make of this these, this clash? I mean, I think that that's a bit of an antiquated view because I think that there's many different ways that people can engage in space. It's mm-hmm. just like when we talk about when children are often making a lot of noise, they're usually like learning in that regard too, right? Um, and certainly I want to say that the AGO has also banned selfie sticks, but most museums ban larger objects, right? Yeah. So a selfie stick, an umbrella. Takes up quite a bit we, of space, yeah. Yeah, and tripods, like things yeah. that when it's a busy space, and certainly those museums are an example of quite busy spaces, mm-hmm. that we just need to be respectful about also how much space we take up as people in that role. But what's really exciting for us is still encouraging the selfie taking because mm-hmm. that's where we get to see how – Art and the AGO can fit into people's daily lives, right? Mm -hmm. And see how they respond to it. And I mean, for me too, it's about continuing a cultural conversation. And oftentimes it's also about seeing people who may not have envisioned themselves being in the museum before. Mm -hmm. So we want to welcome those different perspectives. Like art can be a commonplace where lots of people come together to hold different perspectives and see the world in new ways. And so for me, like all the selfies all the time. (laughs) All the selfies all the time is I think a really lovely slogan to put it. But I I liked the thing that you – you gestured at, which is that there is a bit of an antiquated view of what a gallery or museum is supposed to be. 
Uh, I guess like when people think of a museum, sometimes they think of a very stuffy institution that is like, you please look, but do not touch these things. Do not come anywhere near it. Um, you are to behave as though you were kind of walking on, you know, eggshells. Um, how much of a barrier is that for people experiencing museums, would you say? I think it, it can be one. And that's where I speak about perceived barriers. Sure. But like that is not the way they are anymore. And certainly not yeah. the way we like to see visitors at the AGO. Um, that's really about how we've shifted our admission models, how we program to really try and welcome people in so that they can make meaning in the space. It's no longer about the authority of the museum per yeah. se, but how do we come together in a contact zone that allows for free choice learning, that allows for connecting with people yeah. um, in real life, right? Like, and I think that that's something that's really special and okay. There's a hybrid element that also becomes part of the selfie taking, yeah. but that's so brilliant because that shares art out. And to me, it's, that's super important. Uh, Melissa, I'm going to come to the AGO and we're going to take a selfie together, but you get to pick the painting. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And oh, I would love that. <laughs> let's do it. Of course. Melissa Smith is a program curator at the Art Gallery of Ontario. That is it for the podcast today. Uh, listen, remember, you can find us on Instagram. We are at CommotionCBC. Also, if you want to send this podcast to a friend, like a friend that you really care about, and you're like, this friend needs to be a little more involved in pop culture conversations, and this is a way to do it, send them Commotion. Send them this podcast. Send them this very episode right now. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. I would love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.